Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Romans chapter 8, this Mount Everest of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Some would say the Mount Everest, really, of the New Testament, even maybe the Bible. This great chapter on assurance, the assurance of salvation that we have in and through the work of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to pick up with Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 13. That's what we're going to concentrate on, but let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 13 together, and then we'll come back and take a closer look at what the apostle has to say to us. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, we said over the course of the past several weeks that this eighth chapter of Romans is such an encouragement after the first seven chapters, because what Paul has been doing in the first seven chapters really is convicting us of our sin and of our need for righteousness, of a salvation that comes from afar, what theologians sometimes refer to as an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness that you and I possess in and of ourselves. If we're going to be in a right relationship with God, it is something that must be given to us in and through the work of Jesus Christ. And now he's reached the 8th chapter of Romans and he said, now that that has been made available to us in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can rejoice. And we can rejoice, he says, because there is therefore now no condemnation. It's like a breath of fresh air. 
And I pointed out last week that there are a number of words there in that very first sentence that really sets the, the stage for everything that's going to follow. This is, in many ways, the thesis statement, if you will, and everything else that Paul has to say in the rest of the chapter flows from this. What are some of those words that are significant? Well, of course, the first word of significance is the word condemnation. Condemnation. It means to be under judgment. It means to be under the wrath of God, that very wrath that Paul talked about in the very first chapter of this epistle. He says the wrath of God is being poured out against all of humanity because people have suppressed the truth. But Paul says there is therefore... No condemnation. The second word, there is no condemnation. I mentioned that old Irish song, The Wild Rover. There is no, nay, never. No, nay, never. No more. And that's what we have in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. No, never. Nay, never. No more. But the other word that is significant here, in addition to condemnation and no is the word therefore. Therefore implies something that is based upon what has gone before. There is no condemnation because of what Christ has done on our behalf. If Christ had not done it on our behalf, if it had not been appropriated by faith, well, then there would be condemnation. We said that Paul basically says there are two classes of people in the world. And it's not the haves and the have-nots. The two classes of people in the world are those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are not in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus have passed from death to life, from judgment to vindication. There is no condemnation for them. But what about those who are not in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul's argument would be they are still under judgment. So two classes of people, Paul says, those who are in Christ Jesus who have passed to that point where there is no condemnation and those who are not in Christ Jesus who are still standing condemned. And we asked the question, well, how do you pass from one to the other? And we talked about that last week. Well, what we're going to talk about today now is the point of our justification. All right, Christ has saved us. He has delivered us from judgment under the law. We have passed from death to life. But to what end? Why has God done this? Why has he delivered us? Why has he provided an alien righteousness for us. We have been saved from something, obviously, from condemnation, from wrath, from judgment, from guilt, from shame, from sin, from death. But what Paul's going to go on to explain here in these verses is that we have not only been saved from something, we've actually been saved for something. We've been saved for something. Paul makes that point very clear in his epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, keep your finger there in Romans for just a minute and skip over to Ephesians chapter 2. I think most of you know that Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible because Paul deals with all of these doctrines in Ephesians, but he does them in a very concise manner. Isn't that what we want from preachers? 
If only they could be concise. Well, Paul is far more concise in Ephesians than he is in Romans, which is not to say that that's necessarily important. Sometimes you have to flesh out the arguments, and that's what Paul is doing here. But he does a great job in Ephesians chapter 2 of emphasizing this fact that we've been saved from something for something. Let's just go ahead and read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Um, most of the time when people read Ephesians 2, that's where they end, two, through um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. But we're going to finish out with verse 10 as well. But here's what Paul says. He said, this is your spiritual condition prior to Christ coming and delivering you. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that is precisely the argument that he makes in the first seven chapters of Romans. He says, prior to Jesus Christ coming and delivering you, you were what? You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now, when Paul says dead, he doesn't necessarily mean physically dead, obviously, because he's talking about walking. He means that we're spiritually dead. That is to say, in terms of our relationship with God, we're dead. And here's the problem with being dead. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. I've sometimes said that it's like practicing your sermon in the cemetery. It could be the most magnificent sermon that the world would ever hear. And it could be the most powerful altar call that has ever been given. And yet nobody's going to respond. Why? Because they're dead. Exactly. So the only way that they could possibly respond is if God does for them, spiritually speaking, what he did physically speaking for Lazarus, and that is what? Make them alive again. Make them alive again. And indeed, that's what Paul goes on to explain. He says that's exactly what happens to us. We were not only dead in our trespasses and in our sins, we were like spiritual zombies, physically walking around, but spiritually speaking, we were dead. And as a consequence, we were not only dead, he says we were children of wrath. That's a very interesting phrase because we're going to talk about it later on, and you've heard me say this many times before. Many people today seem to think that we are all, this is a very popular notion in the culture today, we are all children of God. It's the brotherhood of man, it's the fatherhood of God. Isn't that true? Well, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that we are all children of God. We are indeed all creatures of God, but we only become children of God, how? By adoption. Read the first chapter of the Gospel of John. To those who believed, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of the flesh or of the will of a man, but born of God. So we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and we're not only dead, we're under judgment. We are children of wrath, but God. Perhaps the two most important words in this entire second chapter of Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. In other words, God doesn't love us simply because we're lovable. 
God doesn't love us when we manage to clean up our act. God loves us even while we're sinners, even when we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And because of his love, he makes us alive together with Christ. And that's why Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved. It has to be by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. Why? Because we're dead. And dead people can't do anything for themselves. And so he says, it is by grace that you have been saved. And Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Listen, you cannot read those verses and misunderstand what Paul is saying. Because he keeps hammering on the theme. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And just so you understand, this is not your own doing. Do you hear me? This is a gift of God. Don't think for a minute that it's a result of works. Bottom line, no one can boast. Now, normally what happens at that point is that that's where people stop reading. And they say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Thanks be to God. I thought I was lost, but now I've been found. God has delivered me. I'm saved by grace. It's not a matter of my works or my striving. There's nothing that I need to do. But lest we think for one minute that works do not have a place in the Christian life, Paul goes on to add this last verse, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That God prepared beforehand. What he's saying here is that you and I, yes, are saved not by virtue of anything we do because we're dead. God has to make us alive. It has to be grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. There's nothing that we contribute to the process, nothing whatsoever except the sin from which we need to be redeemed. But while God has saved us from something, he has also saved us for something. Indeed, that was his plan before the foundations of the earth that we should do good works. So there is a place for good works in the Christian life, meaning that you're saved by grace through faith does not mean that you can live any way you want. <laughs> I pointed out that this popular notion in some evangelical circles of the carnal Christian is an oxymoron. That word carnal means fleshly, and every time you encounter that phrase in the New Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul, it is used as a synonym for sin. You can't claim to be a new creation, to have been saved by grace, and yet live as though you're not. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians cannot sin. Of course they can. That's why Martin Luther said, we're simul ustus et peccator. We are at the same time sinners and yet justified. But what he does mean is that sin cannot characterize our life. Justification inevitably leads to sanctification. We've been saved from something. We have been saved for 
something. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 8, because that's what Paul is talking about here. Christ's work has delivered us, first and foremost, from sin's penalty. There is therefore now no condemnation. So hallelujah, we've been saved from sin's penalty. But what Paul is talking now about, in the verses that we're looking at today, is that we've not only been saved from sin's penalty, he says we have also been saved from sin's power. That is to say, sin no longer reigns in our life. There is another sovereign. That's not to say that we're not going to sin from time to time. There is still the weakness of the flesh. We still battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But what he is now saying is that you and I have a power within us that allows us to overcome temptation and sin. And that power working in us is what? It is God, the Holy Spirit. That when you are justified, God does something. He sends His Spirit to dwell within us. And God, the Holy Spirit, then begins a process of renovation, like renovating an old house. Some of you I know have done that. If you've ever renovated an old house, there are a number of things about it. First of all, it's costly. Who has ever renovated an old house in Charleston and it has been cheap? You could do it on the cheap, but you'll pay for it later. It's costly. It's also time-consuming. Well, God begins a process of renovation within us, and it at times can feel costly, and it is a process of renovation that takes place over the course of time, over the course of years. In fact, it takes place over the course of the rest of our lives, from the moment of our justification through to the last breath that we take. But the point is that because God the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we are able to live no longer unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. You've heard of the expression, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's Christ-likeness. It's all those characteristics that we know that Jesus Christ possessed in abundance. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we look back from the moment of our conversion, as we grow in grace, we should be able to see God producing in us, if indeed the Holy Spirit dwells within us, the fruits of the Spirit, Christ-likeness. So we've been delivered from sin's penalty, there is no condemnation. We've been delivered from sin's power, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And one day, in glory, we shall be delivered from sin's presence. From sin's presence. And that means, as I said, that these two doctrines go hand in hand. Justification, that is to be declared righteous, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done, received by faith, and sanctification, which is the process of being made holy. And when I say holy, I simply mean being made into the likeness of Christ. That's what we have been saved for. 
And that's what Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Paul earlier in this epistle talks about the real function of the law. What's the real function of the law? The function of the law is not to prevent us from sinning. The primary function of the law is to convict us of the fact that we already have. I said it's like a mirror. A mirror can show you that your face is dirty, but it cannot wash you. The only thing a mirror can do is what? Drive you to the soap and water. That's what the law is designed to do. And we see this throughout Scripture, that every time the law has given, that's the only thing it does is reveal our sinfulness. Think again about the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, we, we tend to think that the Ten Commandments were given there to show us what we ought not to do. Well, think about when the Ten Commandments were given. The first of the commandments is, you shall have no other gods but me, right? How many of you know the Ten Commandments by heart? Okay, next week you come back, it'll be a test. So, <laughs> pass or fail, pass or fail. But the Ten Commandments are given by Moses. He goes up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. He comes down off the mountain to give the commandments to the people. And what does he find them doing when he gets off the mountain? Worshiping the golden calf, which means even before they got them, they'd already violated the first one. That's why Moses threw them down and broke them. It was symbolic of the fact that they had already broken the law. So he could give them the Ten Commandments, but what purpose did it have? It wasn't going to prevent them from doing it. It was simply going to reveal the fact that they already had. Paul says that's what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It could not make you righteous. The only thing the law could do was reveal the fact that you were not. But God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the key. God has done for us in Christ Jesus what the law could not do. He's made us holy. He's not only declared us righteous, he is now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the process of making us into the very thing that he has declared us to be. Now that's really good news, isn't it? It's not just that God says, okay, I'm going to declare you righteous even though you're not. Your life's a mess. You're a mess. But I'm going to overlook it. No, he doesn't overlook it. He doesn't overlook sin. He sends his son as a sacrifice for sin. But then he says, now you're a mess. I'm going to begin a process of cleaning you up. I'm going to renovate your life like that old house, room by room, piece by piece, year by year, until in glory when I look at you, what I see staring back at me is my own reflection as in a mirror. That what I see is the reflection of my own son, Jesus Christ. And here's the really exciting thing about this. This process of 
delivering us from judgment and making us into the image of Christ, this is so important to God that all three persons of the triune Godhead engage in it. That's how precious you are to God. He wants to make you into the likeness of his son. That's the greatest gift anybody could ever receive. And he wants to do it to such a degree that all three persons of the Trinity are going to be engaged in the process. Think about it. God the Father is the what? He is the agent of our justification. He's the great judge. He is the one who declares us not guilty. Now, mind you, he doesn't declare us not innocent, or innocent, rather. He doesn't say we're innocent. There's, there's nothing innocent about us. What he does is he declares us not guilty. A person, when they are accused before the bar of justice, may not be innocent in terms of the way they live their life, but they may not be guilty of what they've been accused of. So God declares us not guilty. God, the Holy Spirit, is also engaged, however. He is the agent of our sanctification. He is the one who comes and dwells within us. This is one of the reasons why we're supposed to take care of our physical bodies. Why? Because we're told that it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us. This is one of the reasons why you and I should have the deepest respect for human beings. Two reasons. One, even those who are not saved have been made in the image of God, and those who are saved, well, they are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons why disputes and anger and hatred and contention in the body of Christ is so grievous to God. So it is God the Holy Spirit who is the agent of our sanctification, and it's God the Son who makes both of these possible by his atoning work. By his death upon the cross, Jesus makes possible the declaration of God that we are not guilty. And by his death upon the cross and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he makes possible the coming of the Holy Spirit who now takes up residence in our lives and begins to transform us evermore into the image of the Son. One goal in mind, and that is that for the first time we might be able to do what we were not able to do before, and that is maintain and keep the righteous requirements of the law. Four important truths that I want us to concentrate on here. The first is this, holiness is what God has saved us for. That's why you've been saved. God has saved you that you might live a holy life. That is justification's goal. That's what Paul was saying there in Ephesians chapter 2. He has saved you by his grace that you might walk in good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Holiness is justification's goal. Holiness consists in fulfilling the law's just demands. It is true, the law condemns us. The law has that pedagogical function. That law is like the mirror. But that doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law is good. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 7. The chapter that immediately precedes this one. What does he say in chapter 7, verse 21? He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, 
evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, Paul is saying, I should be delighting in the law of God in my inner being because I know what? I know that ultimately the law is a good thing. Now, it doesn't bring good news to me, but I know that it's God's law, and if it's God's law, it's got to be a good thing. Not only that, but Jesus himself said that he had not come to what? Destroy the law? He had come to do what? To fulfill it. He said, not one jot nor one tittle of the law shall pass until it's all fulfilled. Jesus didn't say, I'd come to destroy the law. Now, he was accused of that sometimes by the scribes and the Pharisees because he didn't look at things the way they looked at it, things like Sabbath observance and so forth. But Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law. It's God's law. It is a good thing. Rather, I have come to fulfill it. You see, Christ's goal is to transform us into his image. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, we're going to talk about this at length on Sunday. If you come to church, I'm preaching on the transfiguration. We're going to talk at length about this that Jesus Christ is the very reflection of God. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not main, shining in resplendent glory, a glory that was his by right before the foundations of the earth. But what did he do? He set that glory aside and he took on frail human flesh. He veiled himself, as it were, in human flesh. And he came down and he suffered and he died. And to what end? Not merely to save us, but to remake us. To remake us into his own image. That's the goal. That's God's goal. There are two errors in the church. One error is what we would call legalism. We all know what that looks like. The other error is antinomianism. The first error is every jot and tittle of the law, you've got to do it if you're going to be saved. Antinomianism, on the other hand, is that because you're saved by grace, the law doesn't matter. And both of those are twin errors, and Paul addresses them both here. Paul addresses them both. Holiness is justification's goal. Holiness is the work of the Spirit because it is the Spirit who unites us with Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to work on developing this relationship. Clearly, we do. In the early church, we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. All of those things can help develop the relationship, but it is God, the Holy Spirit, who establishes that relationship, union with Christ. Here's something else. Holiness is the goal of justification. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. And according to what Paul says here and what Peter says in his first epistle, holiness is mandatory. Holy living, good works for us as Christians are not options. They are the evidence. Listen to this. They are the evidence that we are saved. They are not the means of our salvation. But good works are, in fact, the evidence of our salvation. They're not the means of our salvation. It's not by our works that we are saved, but it's by our works 
that we will be recognized. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, by their fruits, you will know them. Peter makes this point very clear. Keep your finger there in Romans and skip ahead toward the end of the New Testament to 1 Peter. I like Peter if for no other reason than sanctification took longer with him than maybe some of the others. But he got there. He, he began to understand. He was given the insight. First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's the time of our exile? This is our exile. This life is our exile. We're not yet home. But during the time of your exile, conduct yourselves in a certain way. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How many of you have ever seen the old classic movie, Bridge on the River Kwai? So you, you know the story. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. William Holden, Sir Alec Guinness. It's the story of British soldiers who are prisoners of war, the Japanese, during World War II. And it's tough. And there is this... British commander who realizes that the only way he's going to be able to hold the men together is if he puts them to work. And they are forced to build this bridge over the River Kwai. Now, some of the soldiers feel that they don't want to build anything for the Japanese. These are the enemy, so let's build a structure that is faulty structure that will disrupt their war plans, but this colonel wants to show his captors that they, first of all, cannot break their spirit, and second of all, he wants to show them that they are better than that, and so he insists that they build the finest bridge imaginable, even though they are prisoners of war. Now, what in the end happens? You'll have to watch the movie to see what in the end happens. But there is a picture there, you see, of even though you're captives, even though you're living in exile, even though you're not free, you are nevertheless 
giving it the vest that you have because you are the citizens of another country and you want the world to see that. And Peter says that's what we are called to do. We are called to live differently. We are in exile. The world should see in us something different. It should be evident that we are citizens of another country. First Peter chapter 2, Paul and Peter are in sync here. Peter says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that last phrase is very important. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you do have the Spirit dwelling within you, if indeed you have been saved by grace through faith, then he says, you must put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and grow up into salvation. That is to say, grow up into what you are supposed to be. So again, the place of good works in the Christian life, Paul, Peter are reminding us that good works do not save anybody, but they are nevertheless the evidence of your salvation. You know, sometimes people will say, am I really saved? Do I, do I, do I, do I really know that if I were to die today, I would go to be with the Lord? And sometimes the answer people will give you, well, did you ever make a confession of sin? Oh yes, I went to a Billy Graham crusade back in 1969 and as they were singing just as I am I walked down the aisle and I gave my life to Christ well that's wonderful but Jesus himself said there will be many on that day who will say Lord Lord and I will say I never knew you how do you know for certain well that's the beginning of the relationship the only way you know for certain, however, is if you continue to grow in that relationship. And the evidence of that is that you are growing in holiness. You are growing in Christ-likeness. When you look at your life, do you see yourself growing more like Jesus Christ, becoming more like Jesus Christ? Now, two things are going to happen. If you're really growing in grace, yes, you'll begin to see Christ-likeness. You'll see yourself becoming... More loving, joyful, peaceful, patience, kind, gentle, full of self-control. You'll also, however, begin to see how you are so far from the mark. You, you'll see that there's so much more that needs to happen. When you grow in grace, two things happen. You become more aware of your sinfulness, but you have a deeper longing to be more like Christ. Those two things that's the fruit of the Spirit, and indeed it is the life in the Spirit, and it is what we have been called to be like. And this is not just for us personally, this is for the sake of the world. Brian preached on this a few weeks ago, but let's just take a look at it again. Matthew chapter 5. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And as I pointed out many times before, the Sermon on the Mount is not prescriptive. In other words, when you get the Beatitudes at the very beginning there, Jesus is not saying, do this and you'll be a citizen of the kingdom of God. He's saying, if you're saved by grace through faith, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. But after he goes through the Beatitudes, he then says this in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives life to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. There it is. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, the two images that Jesus employs there, if you were here, you heard Brian preach on them. The first is salt. Now, salt served a number of functions in the first century world. Uh, we know that sun, salt is primarily used as a condiment today. It brings flavor to uh, a meal, to food. But in the first century, the primary function of salt was as a preservative. This was in an age before refrigeration. So the only way that you could keep meat from decaying, from putrefaction, was if you salted it. Salted pork, salted meat. Uh, the Jews would not have had salted ham, but if you're from Virginia, you've heard of uh, Virginia cured ham. And once it's salted, it, it can last for almost forever. So salt's primary function in the ancient world was as a preservative. Now, Jesus goes on to say, but what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? Now, somebody might say, well, sodium chloride is a very stable substance. It really can't lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' day, most of the salt was collected. Do you know where? At the Dead Sea. So those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been to the Dead Sea. The salt content is so high there that you cannot sink. You go out and you sort of just float there in this slimy environment. It's really quite miserable. I always tell everybody, they say, well, you, when I take them to the Holy Land, they say, you're not getting in. I said, no, 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 I've done that. Uh, you go ahead, though. Everybody ought to have the experience, but I've had it, thanks, once is enough. But it is that high salt content. Well, that's where people collected salt. And uh, there is a rainy season in the Holy Land, and what happens is the water comes rushing down into the Dead Sea, uh, when you get these monsoon seasons, it's a very brief period, but it does happen, and you get torrential rains in that part of the world, and it comes down, and all of the salt that is lapped up around the Dead Sea, what happens is this fresh water comes down and washes it all out back into the sea, and there's still this white powdery substance left around the outside of the sea. It looks like salt, but if you taste it, you discover that the actual salt has been washed out. And that's what Jesus is saying. What happens with that? What do you do with that white powdery substance that has lost its salt content? He said it's not good for anything except to be what? And this is exactly what they did. He said thrown out and trampled under feet. And what they would do is they would collect it and use it to pave the roads. But the point is that it had no value. It didn't do anything. It was therefore worthless. Now, Jesus is not saying that you have no worth, no value. Of course we have worth value. He came to die for us. But what he's saying is in terms of our witness, if we're not like the salt, 
then what good are we? What good are we to the world? Now, when he describes this as salt, what he is saying is, you and I are called to live in such a way that we stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay in the world. He's saying our, we're the only hope. How many of you would agree that the world's a mess? How many of you would agree that the country's a mess? You're the salt. If you see the world out there decaying, if you see your country decaying, what's the hope? I can tell you what the hope is not. It's not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Even if Nikki is running. Now that's not to say that we don't engage in a political process. It's just that as Christians we're realists and we realize that the only hope for the world is if you and I live differently. And in so doing, stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay. And Jesus says, you're not only the salt of the earth, he says, you are the light of the world. I think it's hard for us to imagine how dark the world of Jesus' day was, physically speaking. Because we're so accustomed to coming into a dark room and what? Turning on the light switch and immediately everything is illuminated. But let me tell you something, in Jesus' day it was not that way. When the sun went down, the world became an exceedingly dark place. They did not have what we call light pollution. The world became exceedingly dark. People went to bed when the sun went down because there was no place else to go and nothing else to do. It was dark, a dark world. And of course, it was a dark world spiritually as well. But even in that, in a very dark environment, you light a little lamp, and they had little oil lamps, but even that little, that little lamp, even though it was small, in that kind of a dark environment, it would shine like a beacon in the night. Well, we're living in a dark world, aren't we? Let's just be honest, we are. You watch television, and it glorifies everything that is dark. And you and I are called to be the light. You know, the wonderful thing about light is that it never shines so brightly except in the darkness. You go out, you can have one of those high-powered mag light, light, you know, flashlights, torches. You, you go out right now on a day like today and turn that on, and what difference does it make? Nothing. But when darkness comes and you turn on that mag light, my goodness, it's powerful. You and I are living in a darkened world, and Jesus said, we are called to be the light shining in that darkness. We are called to be the salt that is stemming the tide of moral and spiritual decay. You know, there's something else salt does besides just flavoring food and, and just stemming the tide of decay. Salt can also facilitate healing. You know, you go into the ocean after you've scratched your leg and you swim around and you'll notice that that salt water will actually facilitate. You get ulcers in your mouth, the doctor tells you to gargle with what? Salt water. Salt stems the tide of decay. It brings flavor to life. It facilitates easy to get lost, but a light will show you the way. It's easy to get lost, but a light will show you the way. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, but what happens 
If you lose your saltiness, what happens if you take your light and you put it under a bucket? Well, what happens is the world goes from bad to worse. If you don't believe that the world is decaying, if you don't think that the world needs us, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a minute. I, I keep coming back to this over and over again because I am just awestruck. I, I mean this, just awestruck in the first century. Now, you and I are living in 2023, but I'm telling you what Paul writes, is a, it's a description of us today. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. You understand that in the first century, there were two classes of people. There were the rich and there were the poor. There was no middle class. <laughs> and Paul's talking about lovers of money. Most people didn't have anything. But that's why I say... It's, it's a powerful description of our culture because that's exactly what we are. Well, what's the whole purpose of getting an education today? I'm going to tell you what the purpose of an education in the minds of many young parents is this. They want their kids to go to the best, the very best preschool. I'm going to tell you something. I didn't go to school until I was five years old, and I was happy. But now we're putting them in preschool when they're two years old, aren't we? Two years old, three years old. We're sticking them in there. Why? Because we've got to get a head start. So we can get them into the very best school of choice or private school so that they can get the very best education, so that they can get the very best SAT scores, so that they can get the best SAT scores, so that they can get into the best colleges and universities, so that they can get the best degree, so that they can get the best job, the point of which is to do what? Make money and have the good life. And so many of them are lost and miserable anyway. Lovers of money, oh, you better believe it. Because the whole point of making money is so that we can have the good life. And what's the good life? Whatever I want. I want to have as much money as possible so that I can do what I want. So Paul says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, or just getting ready to go into a presidential cycle. Slanderous? That's a prerequisite. Without self-control. They'll be brutal. Do you realize that we're how many days into the new year? And we have had more mass shootings in this country than we have had years so far in 2020, um, days in 2023. Now, somebody can say, well, the problem is with guns. I'm not going to weigh in on a political issue other than to say this. I grew up in a generation where people played cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians, and we never had a mass shooting. Which tells you that the problem, that's not to say that perhaps we shouldn't have gun control. I'm not even saying that. I'm simply pointing out that you can treat the symptoms, but if you don't treat the problem, whatever the problem is, it's going to continue. 
without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Pleasure. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Pleasure. It's all about pleasure. And then here's a damning statement for the church. Having the appearance of godliness, just think about what the Church of England just did, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's the world in which you and I live, isn't it? Paul may have written those words back in the first century, but let me tell you something. They're an apt description of life in 21st century America. And here's the question. If you and I are called to live holy lives, if we've been saved from something, for something, if we've been saved so that we might be transformed into the light of Christ, if we are called to be salt in this decaying world and we do not do it, then what hope is there? This is why we have been saved, my friends. We are saved not by virtue of anything we do, Paul says. We're saved by grace, by faith. It is a gift. But God saved us for something. To be a light in the darkness. To be salt in the midst of decay. To point people toward the one that when they come to know him, they come to know life eternal. So that they can be changed and begin to live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again.